passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. And we are live, everybody. Welcome to this week's Cafe Hangout. I am John Pollock, alongside Wei Ting. We are going to be here with you for the next hour plus, chatting whatever topics you would like to. We will be opening up the phone lines later on in the program to discuss whatever you would like coming up this weekend with Double or Nothing. We'll have the AEW NXT numbers coming down uh, and... I would imagine a heavy focus of today's show is going to be the final days of Owen Hart episode of Dark Side of the Ring, which was their season two finale from this past Tuesday night, uh, set a new record for the series with 349,000 viewers, a lot of discussion coming out of that episode, and Conversely, uh, many media appearances that Martha Hart has conducted over the last week uh, from people including Chris Jericho, Dave Meltzer, and our guest who's going to be coming up momentarily, someone that has uh, covered this story to me as thorough as anyone out there, uh, and that is David Bitsenspan that we're going to look forward to uh, chatting about the episode from Tuesday night and also um, some of the the newer details that have emerged in the in the past couple of years while people have been digging into this. And and again, I would put Bitsenspan right at the top of that list in terms of uh, securing the police report. And uncovering a lot of facts that this is such a famous story way, but one that I think a lot of people are only getting to see a lot of the the more intricate details of um, over this this past period. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, it's amazing to think about this story being a 20 year old story, yet I think so much of it being unknown. And I would say like, you know. It's not like a lot of these details weren't out there um, in Martha Hart's book. A lot of it has been detailed, but I think it takes further presentation through other mediums such as what you've done, John, and what David's done, especially, of course, Dark Side of the Ring and what they've done in order to really bring that information out and, and you know, with, with you guys adding even more details on top of it. So I look forward to just hearing the conversation between you two. Yeah, and so we'll bring in our guest at this point. You know him. He is the co-host of the Between the Sheets podcast with Chris Zellner, has also done uh, so much uh, investigative work when it comes to the pro wrestling industry. He's written pieces on the Owen Hart case for Fanbite, as well as uh, the Daily Beast, which he spoke with Martha Hart in conjunction with uh, earlier this week. You can check out all of, all of his work uh, through Twitter, David B-I-X on Twitter, and he joins us now on the Cafe Hangout. And David, first of all, uh, thanks a lot for joining us here on the Hangout today. And I wanted to start off just with, you know, as someone that has gone through and poured through all of the details of this case, what was uh, some of your immediate takeaways from the Dark Side of the Ring episode on Tuesday night of how they approached the story and uh, some 
some thoughts you had um, in a overall sense? I mean, the big takeaway, I think, was just that overall, just they did a really good job of framing the story, both in terms of what happened, what I guess what really happened in terms of the whole background with the negligence and what led to the fall. And then also towards the end of the episode, doing such a good job framing Martha Oge and Athena's objections to the whole WWE Hall of Fame role. And even as someone who has looked into the case a lot, who has the whole police file, who read all of the documents, at least that are public from the lawsuit that someone was able to get me from the Missouri courts website and, you know, has read Martha's book. Like there was, was still new stuff in the episode. Like, for example, I don't believe she had said in her book that they never proved to a certainty whether or not Owens rehearsal that day used the, uh, the quick release snap shackle that was used in the fatal stunt or the more secure locking carabiner. You know, so that was new. We are uh, having some unfortunate uh, connection issues with John, so we're going to try to reach him back. But, um, David, I I wanted to also ask you, I mean, it certainly seems like part of Martha's motivation throughout this whole thing was to just show the world how negligent WWE was. I mean, seemingly that was her intent in even going to trial, at least, you know, according to what she says. Do you feel like the documentary helped her achieve that goal? I think it helped her achieve that goal, but... I mean, even from interviewing her last week, it did seem like that the big thing she would have wanted to be in it too was the whole back and forth in timeline with the riggers. Because, and I get her perspective on this, if you don't know that part, then understanding WWE specific negligence is, it's really not as clear. And I'm not saying this as a slight to Evan and Jason or anyone else, because they're walking a tightrope and having to fit everything into 44 minutes and also have all the background and then the aftermath. But that, I, I think it's such a key part of it. And it's the one thing that even people who know that it wasn't the appropriate equipment don't always know. So I do, I do wish, I wish that it had been covered. And I do think it would have been, you know, the fact that she dropped Lumar, the manufacturer of the quick release from the case, which even if the judge ruled that her, her and her lawyers did that in bad faith, which was, was well allowed WWE to sue, they had the big insurance policy. If she was just going for money, she would not have dropped them from the case. So I totally believe she wanted to go to trial and get the facts out there. But like she said, like the stress was eating her alive. It, what, it, as far as what would happen in the end, as far as punishment, it would never be anything more than money. So I get her decision, but... I do think, and she seems to kind of realize that, that she didn't necessarily consider the effect the settlement would have on the full story not getting out there in a mass media fashion, which I do want to add real quick before we move on. One of the things that really hit me when I got the police report uh, a few months back is anyone could have gotten that pretty much since the case was closed in late July '99. When you consider how big a story this was, at least at first, it is surprising that none of the Kansas City media got it. You know, Dave Meltzer, Wade Keller didn't get it. You know, and none of the Canadian media picked it up. It, it Like, with hindsight, especially because the thing I didn't realize is the police report, which anyone can read, I link it in that article I did at Fanbyte, and I linked it on my Twitter earlier this week. It lays out about 95% of what happened. 
there are things that clarify it from what came out in the lawsuit, but you get the gist of it. And this, like, this story could and should have been out there no later than the summer of 99. Um, in, ter- in terms of when uh, going through the uh, police report, uh, David, can you talk a little bit about the role of uh, Bobby Talbert and, you know, from from what you can gather, like any like he to me is like a key figure that, to, to my knowledge, has has never spoken about this. And he is, you know, a, a principal individual involved of, of the rigging the day of. I mean, he is the main rigger. Um, I mean, the thing that needs to be stressed, too, because, look, I think there are people in WWE that just never because of what their jobs were and what they would have been privy to probably never found out that he was never the guy in charge of sing stunts and that he had misrepresented himself. So like even someone like Vince Russo, who I don't think is telling the whole truth about his, you know, side of everything, which I should also say, Russo's not mentioned in Martha's book. He's not mentioned the police report. He's barely mentioned any of the public lawsuit stuff other than booking a stunt like that in general, people do need to stop blaming Vince Russo. But anyway, Bobby Talbert, um, I think I think that also just affected people's perceptions over the year, that this guy had misrepresented himself as the guy in charge of Sting's repelling stunts. It turned out he was just someone who assisted pretty much in just the ones where they had to pull Sting back up, and only three times, like, he was not... He was not the guy in charge. You know, it was uh, Ellis Edwards was WCW stunt coordinator and his main rigger that he would bring in was Barry Brazell. Now, I should mention Barry Brazell did recommend Talbert to WWE. Um, Whether or not he knew that he didn't really have the requisite know-how, I have no idea. Um, I don't know how much he had worked with him outside of those three occasions, but... I mean, he he bears some at least small degree of fault in this, too, because he is the one that recommended Talbert to WWE. And then Talbert, uh, you know, he he did misrepresent himself to WWE. I don't think it ever came out when WWE knew that he had misrepresented himself um, because their their narrative for a while was this is the same team that did sting stunts doing it the same way when it turned out neither of those things were true. Um, and then it turns out like he just really didn't have a good idea of what he was doing. I don't know how much experience he had at the time, but not only did he use the worst possible choice as far as the actual rigging with the quick release, you know, he used the wrong type of vest too. He used a jerk vest for which, for, which is mainly used for either dragging someone like behind a car or kind of like a basically for someone getting John wooed, like when they're kind of yanked diagonally, that's what a jerk vest is. But the way it's designed, someone shouldn't be hanging in it because it cuts off circulation and breathing, which is believed to be why Owen was immediately adjusting his cape. And then in adjusting his cape, what's believed to happen is that because uh, Talbert did not put enough slack in the release cord, he tied to the quick release that the cape caught in it and triggered the release. And to me as well, watching this episode, like it, 
it goes to a, a larger discussion about, okay, we have this, this horrific example of negligence that leads to the ultimate tragedy. And we fast forward to today of what the, what like the oversight is in these kinds of situations. And you go back to a couple of years ago when Sami Zayn talked about that Hell in a Cell stunt with Kevin Owens and kind of had that same thought. Like we are being asked to do things that are sometimes, I'm paraphrasing, but beyond what, like, what we are capable. We are not stuntmen. And this is not something where this is something where a commission necessarily is going to oversee this. These performers are not part of any kind of uh, stuntman association. It's largely left to the WWE to oversee all of these stunts that, you know, increased after Owen. If you want to look at Shane McMahon examples and other other you know performers as well, that um, there's nothing stopping WWE other than their own uh, internal decisions to lower a person from the ceiling next week if they wanted to and that to me is like there's still like that lack of protection to me of the performers if the wwe had their desire to do some dangerous stunt that we see many examples of on a yearly basis yeah and i mean even going back to then too as far as i know wwe never had a stunt coordinator until they signed ellis edwards uh year or so after wcw closed and I don't know if they still do have someone in that formal role. I mean, it didn't really hit me to think about it much until last night, so I haven't asked. But I, that is some. They really should have like a trained Hollywood stunt person that works full time for them, you know, because you know they have someone like Richie Posner who does the props and, as best as I can tell, is incredible at it and making gimmick stuff, but that doesn't all work together though. I mean, you know, with the example you give with, you know, Kevin Owens, Shane McMahon and all that, like their job is not to hit a specific mark on a stunt. That's not pro wrestling. Um, you know, some have been skilled enough that they're able to do it on something that's kind of above and beyond. You know, I think besides, you know, being able to hit the, you know, modified crash pad version of the announce table dead center from the higher hell in a cell. Not just that, but then even, um, oh, I forget which of the Lucha Underground produced. I think it was Eric Van Wagenen uh, a week or two ago tweeted a clip of a rehearsal run and run through that Angelico did of that balcony dive from Lucha Underground. Right. You know, from the balcony to the center of the ring onto a crash pad that, um, some of the studio executives had asked them to do for insurance reasons, which, you know, and Helico nailed it. Ricochet did it after even just for fun. <laughs> but that's not the way wrestling works. You know, they have their ring positioning. They know what they need to hit in certain parts of the ring and what's safer in the center relative to in the corner. But hitting a specific mark so you make the prop work from a high place in taking a big fall is not what they do. And there probably, I mean, there probably is still too much of that. Like we've, but, it's an extreme example, but like but, we've literally seen the undertaker caught on fire right before a match and have to go through this. It's just, you, you take this into any other kind of filming environment. Like this is, it's crazy kind of what 
it's just it's the mentality as well that you don't even think twice about um, stopping to make sure this man is okay. He goes ahead. He does an elimination chamber match, and it's it, it's an overall protection that I. I still feel he's not there in place, and it's always going to be the inherent answer that what you are asked of, you go ahead and do, and that's you know certainly the case in Owen, who was very vocal about his his you know hesitancy to do this stunt that had uh, you know the most unfortunate ending of them all. But it's not as though we fast forward today and there aren't you know similar asks of talent that is there. It's just that you know we we haven't had an example like like an Owen Hart. Yeah. I, I mean, I even think back to like something like Rob Gronkowski being asked to fall off of that balcony at Full Sail for WrestleMania. And then um, the story that's been going out there of Vince McMahon, you know, saying that I could do it and doing it himself. And um, certainly, you know, David, do you feel like that pressure to perhaps go on to, to do stunts that people, mm, I guess, uh, uh you know, are, are, aren't unsure of how much of that pressure changed at all within the past 20 years. I don't think it has. And I think there's also another aspect that kind of needs to be stressed along with it. Well, it, twofold. I mean, but as far as medical care, the fact that there is still any of that when WWE contracts don't actually get even guarantee on the job injury coverage is ridiculous. Like, I don't think most people know this. The WWE contracts do not guarantee that they will pay for your injury coverage. They say they will take care of it in, like, it's something to the effective uh, in accordance with current company policy at the time it happens. So, like, when stuff happened, like, the stuff that was more kind of Twitter whispered, like, about certain people's surgeries not being paid for because either they didn't like the doctor or whatever... Like, they are allowed to do that. And the there the fact there is no protection for that, I don't, like, you know, it's a standard contract. Who knows how many of the wrestlers even read them through? How many of the wrestlers even know that they're not guaranteed it? And then the other thing I was thinking about, and it, you know, happens to be with the Hart family. There is still a culture back there that is, I think, even though it shouldn't be with a lot of the younger generation, Treating everyone like they're trying to work everyone else. And then you get something like Tyson Kidd. He broke his neck. And no matter what he's telling the referee, no matter what he's, you know, he's not stretchered out. When he's telling them in the back, they think he's faking for some reason and won't call an ambulance. And Natalia had to drive him to the hospital and it turned out that he was, you know, a couple millimeters away from being killed. Uh, you know, Given like this case, um, you know, so much of this, you know, Broken Hearts is like an essential read. I think that that's a book yes. that kind of went under a lot of people's radar at the time. Um, but that it, like if you wanted to know what this case would have looked like if it went to court, like that is like their entire side. She does an incredible amount of research, which makes uh, the Jerry McDivitt statement this week like laughable. But that's that's another subject. But as you have you know gone in as much depth as possible, are there like glaring questions you still have are because it's a case that I mean we can pretty much piece together like a pretty solid picture of what went on but are there those glaring questions you still have at the end of this the most immediate one is when you guys have talked about you know in the last year or so which is why didn't the police stop the show 
Um, I mean, it's not something as far as the fall itself, but it, it really doesn't make any sense. Um, for as much as there's been the argument for 21 years about WWE making the decision to keep the show going, it shouldn't have even been in their hands. You know, it was a, either if you want to use the potent, word potential in front of it or not, it was a crime scene. And it's just bizarre. And I don't think there's ever been an answer as to why. I highly doubt that if someone asked now, the Kansas City Police Department would be able, would either be willing to or maybe even able to give an answer. Um, so I mean, that's the big one. As far as the actual fall and everything that happened, I'd be curious to know the actual verbiage of what was asked of Bobby Talbert and previously Joe Branham. Mm-hmm. Um, because one of the things I didn't realize until getting the police report and looking at what uh, Tom DeWeer of the International Stunt Association told the police when one of the detectives went to Hollywood and kind of went over everything with him and they did some tests with him and an associate of his, even for what WWE wanted, it was still the worst possible option. They could have used multiple clips. You know, they could have used at least two, one on the left, one on the right. They could have used a uh, three-ring release, which is what's used in parachutes and can be adjusted so it requires this very, like, deliberate, you know, big pull. Um, And also, I didn't realize this until last night when I was just asking people, like, for help finding certain Sting videos. I asked on Twitter, the times that it looks like Sting might be using a quick release, and we should know too, it confuses everything, and I don't know which times it was or why they made the decision because we don't have Ellis Edwards' entire deposition. But they, they did use the same quick release for Sting at times, but they always but they used at least two. Yeah. Um, but if you look closely... There are times though where Sting is using the locking carabiner, and there was a rigger who replied to me on Twitter, kind of explaining this. You'll see there's a little twist when he's taking when he's unhooking himself. That's because he did have a locking carabiner. It's just because he had been gone through two months of training, and they had a real stunt coordinator that oversaw the contractors that he had gotten really good at undoing it. So I'd like to know, like. Did WWE know there was a specific item they were looking for? Or was it just like, what's the quickest way that he can get out of this? And then, again, like, did Bobby Talbert interpret that a certain way? Or was there something specific that he was told to use, so he used it? Um, That, to me, would be very interesting because, you know, I would think someone with more experience... um, could have just would have either get, used a better option, even within giving control of the stunt to him, which they, sh- you know, you're not supposed to do. But if you're going to do it, there are multiple better options. Like that, that's something, and I don't think we'll ever know because it's not like Bobby Talbert will give interviews. I would think I've never tried, but they never even got to depose him in the lawsuit. No. So the only stuff we have from him is what he told police in a few interviews. Um, do you guys know but, if he's he ended up continuing to work in the industry doing? Oh yeah, stunt he rigging? Uh, he did he did rigging on one of the Rocks movies. Oh wow! In the last several years, yeah. 
It's crazy. Um, I would hope he got better at it. Yeah. But I mean, the other, the one thing a little weird. I hadn't looked at his IMDb first. I looked at, I don't remember what site, but it's one of those sites where you know stunt workers and actors can advertise themselves on. And if you look at the way he advertises himself, he's not advertising himself as a rigger per se. It's mainly stuntman work and stunt coordination. But if you look at his credits, he has done rigging. Hmm. So that makes you wonder a little bit. Um, does he not seek that out specifically because of this? Um, but, I mean, yeah, he's still working. Um, I'm not sure if he's in Orlando anymore. But he's still working. Um, he, he's the one that I, I think would be someone that you would certainly want to hear from. I mean, was this a guy that had any aversion to using, you know, the quick release? Did he um, did did he voice any concern that I mean, Joe Branham drew a line in the sand over over using as well? And I mean, it's it's a little morbid to look at it from this way, but you know, so much of this, it's you know the the cause of all of this is like the idea of not making this look clumsy and saving, you know, a handful of seconds in terms of using the quick release versus the locking carabiner. And yet this whole stunt, it was designed to be a spoof on the legitimate version that Sting had done, that it almost works to what their goal was of this, to have that stumble, to have him playing around trying to release the, the carabiner at the, at, as he falls down like this was not designed to be this slick stunt that goes off and looks flawless it was supposed to be a comedy bit at the end of it it's all of these questions of how it gets there i think that's the frustrating part that when it said that this was so needless it really was in every sense yeah and one thing that's also kind of weird too and this didn't really even hit me until last day or two i wouldn't have only done this any kind of repelling stunt once before which is also kind of Weird, because if you think about, like, online arguments over the years and stuff, you'll hear the idea that he did it several times. He did it. He only had done it once before six months earlier. Yeah. And in, in St. Louis, coincidentally, where Rod yes. is the, the night after, which is just a weird coincidence. Yes. But, like, uh, and this is this helps also just kind of crystallize that the desire for the quick release had nothing to do with him because his previous stunt – he never had to get out of the harness. That's right. He gets caught. Yeah. He, the idea is he gets like, I think, stuck a few feet up and then they just pull him back out after Steve Blackman's wailing on him. So it's it's not even anything he, you know, did, so to speak. This is just something they had been wanting to do. And the other thing that's just ridiculous, too, is. He's coming. He's coming out first. Especially if you believe Russo's thing that, which I don't know if I do, and we'll get to that in a second, that he originally was supposed to come out second and then told Russo, no, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. If I'm just hanging there trying to get out of the harness, then Godfather would have to just start beating me up. But, which, I mean, I can, I, when Russo says things that make more sense, I can kind of buy them, but, like that, but... Still, it's just like he's coming out first. His opponent is someone who has a very elaborate ring entrance. Like, it doesn't even make sense for the specific match and angle that you would need to save those seconds. 
one you know other what thing I mean? I, yeah absolutely i i completely agree um it's kind of alluded to in the documentary, but not outright said, but uh, I've heard it enough times. And there, there was a time period, like, I think this was just um, assumed, but just to, like, set the record straight here. When when we get the aerial shots and we're seeing the blood there, like, I went back and watched this. And there is a scene on Heat where there, there's a brood segment. And, like, is, is are we definitive? Like, that that is not... Owen's blood to the best of your knowledge is that because that had always been my assumption was this was the brood segment that there's a scene and I can't remember the performer off the top of my head who gets the bloodbath and just like wipes across the edge of the mat and that happens on heat not the pay-per-view okay from the little I I tried rewatching a couple nights ago and just also my understanding of the over the years my my belief has always been that the the big stain is from the brood bloodbath using stage blood. But the police report says that there are two real distinct blood stains in addition to the stage blood. Okay. Like, it specifically says that. Okay. Like, so they did, you know, a luminol or whatever test. Gotcha. So, I believe, and I believe that is Owen, because I don't think anyone bled in the matches before he fell, Right. No, because, I mean, they did have the hardcore match before, and I, I don't recall there being, like, any blood on the show beyond that, that, brood, that brood spot bef- that preceded the accident. I mean, Nicole Bass, I think, got cut from the guitar shot, but that's after Owen fell. Right. Which is when right, the shot anyway, probably would have been. But anyway, so, I mean, my understanding is, is that until he had basically internally bled out while he's still more or less still moderately alive that he was bleeding from a wound on his arm. Right. So there is, I mean, there is Owen Hart's blood in the ring when they're wrestling. The people who have been you know, saying on Twitter, Oh, that that's a lie. I think they're mostly trolling because if you look, they're like, they're people who are searching out and replying to every single tweet that mentions Owen Hart's blood being in the ring. But I, I'm not sure they have any idea that they're wrong either, um, if that makes sense. But no, it is his blood. And also the ring, I, you know, at least this got mentioned, you know, talked about it in the documentary. Like, the ring being broken in the show going on, too, is ridiculous in its own way. Completely, mm-hmm. completely. Do, do you have the, the faith that today that, that show 1,000% stops immediately? If it's in WWE's hands? Yes. No, because of Lawler. Yeah, that's there. there's your example right there. I mean, that is about as close as we get. And that was only, well, that we're, we're coming up on eight years since, since that happened uh, in Montreal. Yes. So, I mean, it's, it's a question I've had as well, that in WWE's hands, do they stop? And I, I, I can't say that confidently. Not at all. Um, that they necessarily no, stop. I mean, you know, it's not in the ring, but I really don't think that matters. I mean, you know, you don't have the accident crime scene aspect, but it's all, I mean, but a one, you know, they, I still think it shows that they probably would. Um, and then also with Lawler, he still had wrestled earlier in the night too. Like you would feel like you'd want to just cut bait on the show there for a number of reasons, tying into him having the heart attack. Or, I mean, even technically, it may not even have been a heart attack, right? It was, 
it turned out eventually that I think it was like a arrhythmia type thing and his heart stopped, right? I think it was like cardiac arrest was like the, the term. Yeah. Right, right. So no, I mean I don't I don't think they would. And just so I don't forget it too. So as far as Russo, and I'm kinda cl- curious what both of you guys think about this. Russo's story that he always tells, he's been very consistent. And it's been going back like fifteen years, I think, to um to the Wade Keller DVD interview that he did with Russo and FRR. Something to the effect of he's told, hey, the riggers who do stings stunts are going to be in Kansas City to show show us some stuff because they want to work with us. Is there anything you can write in the show that they can do? And that he's like, oh, Owen, Owen just did the rappelling six months ago. Let's do that. And that that's basically his involvement. Now, I do believe that Russo's involvement was only on the periphery for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. But there's nothing in any of the evidence that suggests his underlying story is true. But I don't know what he'd be lying about. Like what? And the other thing is Ferrara tells the same story. And I do find Ferrara more trustworthy. But I don't really buy that story story like what do you guys think of that i would i mean you're taking vince russo at his word which i think you have to with a grain of salt uh in in that instance i have never held like russo kind of his feet to the fire on this story like if at absolutely you you look at this like if this was his brainchild okay let's go to that extreme that he was the one who thought this up wrote it into the script i still imagine that he is doing so with the idea that this is going to be a safely performed stunt and i i don't think you can put all of that on the writer who ultimately is pitching an idea that has to be okayed and it's out of his hands in terms of the execution of such an elaborate stunt so i i have a hard time looking at russo and cast i I think that's unfair uh guilt to place at at his his shoulders but, but, yeah. but in terms I mean, of being told that, I mean, I mean that's Russo's story. And it's like, I, I can't take that as, as gospel either. No, I can't. But it's like, it's weird to me when it genuinely seems like he really does not have any real blame here. Like, but, and, but the fact that Ferrar also backs him up, like, is it just as simple as just plain, just even though they didn't really do anything, like, at fault – like just guilt on their part because they consider themselves the ones who put him in the initial situation. I'm sure there's something to that. I think that anyone involved with that from concept to execution, I mean, probably, you know, has to assume some of that uh, internally um, afterward. I don't know if that, it, that is their way of looking at what caused this. I, I mean, I don't dismiss it outright that they were told, Hey, um, we want to come up with like that. It was, instead of coming out of like their uh, thought process that it was an idea, Hey, work, incorporate this. I don't dismiss it out of hand. Um, But I would, I would, I can't really get into like, yeah, the, the motive of them, if, if they are not being accurate to, to what the rationale behind that would be, because I think a lot of people that if you look at this case, um, I, I think that the writers, it's like once the idea comes out, it's like that's kind of out of their purview at that point when it comes to yes. the execution of this. Much like, you know, I mean, that, that's another part of all of this is that you look at like it's not as though they, they tone down the, the risk level for a, lo- a lot of the Shane McMahon stunts, even, you know, 
no, the, the No Way Out 2000 stunt with McFoley. Like, that's considered, you know, the safe version of a Hell in a Cell stunt for him. And there's still, like, a degree of, you know, expertise that needs to be done to execute that flawlessly and a lot of trust in the people that are performing this and putting this together. And for McFoley, I mean, going through that first Hell in a Cell where there was a lot of damage that guy took that I don't know if I would have that same level of trust in terms of just executing what, I mean, turns out fine in 2000, all things considered. But I mean, this, this was not like a lessening of these performers having to have an inordinate amount of trust in the team that are executing and, you know, setting out as safety measures as best they can. Yeah. And that's also with the second big bump in the Hell in a Cell match also getting, having a prop failure. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I, I've bought that there was nothing supposed to happen, but I, it seems like it was gimmicked and they were way too optimistic about how that gimmicking would work, that it would be able, that the panel on the top of the cage would like go diagonal and Mick could slide down, which like with hindsight, it's kind of amazing that they thought that could work. When it, as opposed to what ended up happening, which with Mick just going straight through. Um, something else to you, and just to close the loop on what we were just talking about, because I think it's important, and not even just in the context of Russo, but it is, it is the thing people use to put blame on him. Even though Owen was supposed to get stuck a few feet up, pull the release, and do a pratfall, that's not why the quick release was there. The pratfall was put in because they had the quick release. The quick release you know, as discussed before, was something they had just been trying to get for a while for stupid production concerns. So I get why people have had that misconception, but it's, but it's not what happened. It's, it's just something that was there because it was like, oh, we have this quick release now. We can do this. Um, but it was, not the, it was not causative of anything. So it, I, you get what I'm saying, though. Like, it's, it's something people used to blame Russo, but even then it's like, in knowing what really happened, people should know it was the effect and not the cause of anything. Uh, as we wind this down, uh, David, I just wanted to ask kind of, like, your overall thoughts on uh, Dark Side of the Ring this season. I mean, they did some tremendous numbers, uh, you know, including in, in, in some demos, including the main one, topping out last week's NXT, and... Where you see the series going for the, the directors involved, the producers, and for Vice as well that has found this, you know, the thing that has been uh, an amazing franchise for Vice TV to get itself around. Uh, what do you think the future of this show is? I gotta think Vice TV will want a third season. I mean, the thing that's just a little weird, I mean, besides also that with the travel and everything they'll have to do, we don't know exactly when the, when a new season would be entirely feasible, but you know, the, the fact that it's weird that vice has been sort of not as bullish on the show. It seems as they should be because, you know, they were kind of weird about doing a second season and when they'd give, just getting the thing on you know, a launch seemed date. to be like an enormous fight just to get the series on. And yeah, like I, I would just say that the, you know, this has been a home run for those involved yeah. and a season three to me, uh, the ask will be that much more in terms of, Hey, we've, we've shown you what this, like, this is our proof of concept. Uh, to me, it's just season three. It's like, I, I would not be agreeing to do this on the previous terms. I would want, you know, a sizable um, increase in whatever is, 
being offered. I think that it's, you know, they, they have an, an enormous amount of leverage to me to go into a third season. And for Vice, I, I'm really curious how this all turns out. I mean, especially when, I mean, not only did they do the record viewership, not only did they do the record key demo rating, I mean, the big thing with this week's episode to me is, besides, but, well, besides being last week, or well, the last several weeks of NXT in the key demo is the ranking of the shows all day Tuesday on cable and the demo. Their previous high was something like, I think, 68th for last week's episode on the Road Warriors. This week, they were 31st among cable originals for the day. I mean, when you consider the footprint of Vice TV, that's incredible. So... I got to think they're going to want like it, I got to think it's an inevitability. Maybe it'll take longer than we'd like because of the way the pandemic would affect shooting. But I got to think there's a third season and I got to think Vice probably has a better idea of the value to them now, especially now that they added the after show. Even if that doesn't do as well, still, it's a shoestring budget show that I'm sure is doing better than most of what they put on. And also, we should mention, too, we haven't been getting these numbers past the first week. But if the first week's any indication, just on TV alone, the actual viewership of each episode is several times as much as the premiere. Like, you'll mm-hmm. see people sometimes being like, oh, what, 250,000 people are watching this. What's that in the grand scheme of things? No, the viewership with, like, the first day replays and I think also DVR for the Benwell episodes was something like – it was like 1.2 million, right? something in that range and we're talking YouTube so, and, and just pirate piracy sites and everything as right, well that's not even counting YouTube. Yeah. yeah i mean and, well also with youtube too like they have not done a good job policing youtube so there's a mm-hmm. lot of unofficial youtube uploads they're getting a lot of views and they probably should do a better job with that but um regardless like yeah i think it'll be a season three as far as how season two went i think overall it was much better than the first season i say that as someone who liked the first season but um more consistent tone, better edited, like the the first season, there was kind of this, I don't know if I would say it was a pattern, but there were at least a few episodes where the last five minutes always seemed very rushed. Um, that wasn't an issue. They seemed to ground the show more. They seemed to get a better balance of if we don't have new information per se, you know, always grounding in the emotions of the people it affected. Um, just overall, I think it was just a more finely executed show because they had kind of, you know, found their voice. They had the feedback from the first season, which they obviously didn't have going in. So I think they did a better job. And, you know, like I said, kind of in the lead for my Daily Beast article earlier in the week, I mean, they, they've brought a lot of, you know, sunshine to a lot of stuff that, I think a lot of fans watching had never heard of before. And I mean, that's, that's pretty big when you consider the topics being covered. So, Mm -hmm. I I mean, I think they're doing a good thing. I, I think it's frustrating that there are so many, like when I, and when I say this, I'm saying like self-identified WWE fans who see writing about, I mean, excuse me, covering anything that reflects negatively on the company is, a hit piece or I even saw people use the word propaganda, which is amazing in context, but it it sucks that there's still that element. And we could probably go on for days just talking about the negative reaction to the show and the Martha interviews. But 
I don't think it's worth talking that much about, but I think, I mean, but I, I really liked how the show was this season. And I mean, there's part, there's part of me that wishes the way that they could do the first season episodes over, you know, to kind of smooth out the imperfections that weren't really in this season's episode episodes, excuse me, but over, I mean, I'm really happy with it. I'm looking forward to whatever they do with season three. Uh, well, Bix, you were correct in assuming we would need more than 15 minutes to uh, to chat about this. So you've been very generous. How with your time. did you think there would be that would be enough? I was being courteous of your time. I, I hate being one to to ask for a, a marathon session, but uh, we'll definitely have to get you uh, back on. Um, you're, you're reporting on this story, and so many have been uh, excellent. Uh, where do you want to uh, direct everybody to go? Uh, follow all of your work, and uh, do you have anything down in the uh, the pipeline regarding Owen? Because um, there is this. Um, this documentary that to my knowledge is still going forward that will probably, you know, resurface a lot of these, these stories whenever that comes out. Um, I mean, to take that one first, I've been thinking about maybe, and I don't know even where I would publish it because I would, I would probably want to pitch it to someone because I'd want it to have like good SEO. I feel like someone needs to write like a, frequently asked questions thing about it that just lays everything out topic by topic as opposed to being a narrative. Like even, you know, even though like the article I did a year ago for Dead Spin did incredibly well, a lot of people read it. Like there are going to be people who aren't going to read even like, you know, a 2,500 word article, but they might like see like frequently asked questions and be like, oh, okay, I can scroll down to the one thing and whatever. So there's part of me that wants to do something like that. And also then go back into the newspaper articles and the newsletters and kind of trace back what WWE was saying at the time and that kind of thing, because I feel like some of that's gotten lost. Like, you know, um, Martha mentioning in the uh, Wrestling Observer radio interview she did yesterday that WWE just said they paid for the funeral when they didn't, you know, that type of thing. So I feel like there's a lot that kind of would be kind of rediscovered, but also bet maybe to a lot of fans be more accessible in that form. Um, so I'm, I'm wanting to maybe do something like that. And there's part of me that wants to maybe write some kind of article that would talk to Joe Branham and maybe seek out some of the other stunt people. But I mean, that's nothing I'm like committed to. And then I have some other stuff that is in the pipeline, but nothing I want to say this second. Um, but everyone can follow me on Twitter at David Bix, uh, as uh, John mentioned earlier. Um, between the sheets, you can check out every Monday wherever podcasts are found. Between the sheets covers a week in wrestling history as it was covered in the newsletters, in depth, very long podcast um, every week. And we also have our Patreon at patreon.com slash between the sheets where we do an individual topic and we do a deep dive. And um, we put up a couple of those in the last several weeks so people can kind of see what they're like. We put up the first part we did when we did our GWF series. Uh, Kind of go, going over all the like Nigerian scam stuff in its uh, origins, and then we also put up both of our parts together on Herbie Abrams EWF. Where we, I mean, if you liked the uh, Dark Side episode, this is about well, actually without commercials, probably about eight times as long. <laughs> so it covers basically everything, um, everything from him like threatening to sue Mike Sawyer 
you know, for talking about him bouncing checks on a 900 number and just all sorts of weird stuff. So uh, you can check that out as well. And then uh, I also have, I need to put stuff up on it a little more often, but I have a uh, blog on Substack, babyfaceveheel.com. Uh, uh, babyface versus is in vsheel.com should work too. Um, but I'll put stuff up there and I'll put up some, uh, if you do a paid subscription, some exclusive stuff as well, like with the, steroid trial and all that. So I basically, if, if there's something I just kind of want to quickly throw together, or if there's something that I don't really think I could pitch or is too granular or too geeky within my own milieu, it'll, it'll go up there. And uh, I did put something up earlier in this week, kind of because I had not gotten to go in depth in it before on the whole, uh, the thing I mentioned earlier with the international stunt association guy going and like how we explain that the uh, quick release with Owen was, even the worst option for what WWE was trying to do. So that's there. I think that's it for now. I will be, I, I know people have keep asking me about it. I'm going to be putting up, launching a podcast there too, where it's going to be like a different topic kind of along those lines, you know, law, crime, whatever. And I do have a few episodes banked, but it's, it's been delayed by a few different things I'm doing, but that is coming soon. So uh, thank you guys for having me again though. Oh, we appreciate it. Uh, we'll definitely have to have you uh, back on sometime. Thanks. Uh, you know, uh, fantastic reporting on this story and just at large as well so thanks uh, so much for this time and uh, we'll, we'll definitely chat with you soon Bix thanks again thanks guys alright that was David Bixenspan you can follow him on Twitter David B-I-X and way at this point I think we can uh, open up the phone lines if people want to chat about any of the uh, the subjects that we were uh, covering over the uh, the last hour uh, regarding the the Owen Hart story uh, those are welcome uh, we can also chat a bit about double or nothing that's coming up Saturday and probably in the next 10 to 15 minutes we should be getting the uh, aew NXT numbers uh, from Wednesday but um, you know just quickly um, you've gotten to see dark side of the ring Um what are we'll do a deeper review on rewind to smackdown on friday night but uh what did you come away with um just some of your immediate thoughts um you know it was it's an incredibly um it's something i i definitely found myself putting off watching because i knew because i knew how mm, difficult of a topic going to be and certainly it was uh but you know after watching it um i Certainly, you know, with the combination of, I think, you know, you're a great audio documentary, which I, I would recommend everybody re-listen to um, this point, um, really just kind of like reaffirmed just how, sorry about that, how much little it's I think was out there in the GM. public. Everybody wants to get in on this. So um, anyway, we'll, we'll share our thoughts a, a little bit more on uh, Rewind to Smackdown this uh, upcoming Friday. But I want to take this time to hear from all of you guys who have something to say about it. And I do have to repeat that we only have one phone line. So uh, please call back if you aren't um, being reached. And before we do that, let me just uh, do also, my best Also, when we, when we get up- the calls, uh, I want to try and get to as many as we can. So let's... Um- Try and just get the our, your question or thought in, uh, and yeah. we, we want to just fit as many as we can in because we got about uh, 15, 20 minutes left here. Yes. Okay. We go to our first caller. Uh, hey, this is a video call. Uh, state your name and uh, where you're calling from. What's up, John and Way? This is Aaron from Cincinnati. Hey, Aaron. Um, Aaron. Long-time listener, 10 years or so. Um, visited Toronto with my family. The first thing I had to do is go drop off some gift cards, you boys. Um, oh, man. Thank you. No worries. And I've been, um, you know, at home, obviously a lot. So kind of coming off that heavy conversation, just kind of way I saw something on your Instagram yesterday, making some kind of food. 
what's some of your go-to meals, man? Like, I'm I'm desperate for some new recipes, some new ideas. I'm just like burnt out on salads and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I I appreciate the the, <laughs> the call. Uh, well, uh, what you saw was an omu rice, which is just a, a dish I picked up uh, during my time in Japan. Really, it's just fried rice and an omelet on top, as simple as that, and a bit of ketchup. So delicious. Um, I, I highly recommend it. Really, the trick is making sure that omelet is nice and soft and covers the entire surface area of your fried rice. John. I could tell that was the key because it took me a second to even recognize that that was an omelet, but yeah, it's good. Actually, um, Way's latest dish he's working on is the uh, the UWF Mondo Guerrero Taco Grande <laughs> special, actually. I think, I think Way's trying that one out. With Taco sriracha. Grande course that's right uh do you have a wrestling question on your mind or was it just the food? no wrestling question man i, I, I love, it. Just I love it. it we'll take food I love it. Well. that's great thank you so much appreciate it talk soon guys see ya all righty uh i like that we go up next to i believe this is a uh just a standard audio call but alex are you on the line Alex, you might be muted right now. If you are, you can unmute yourself and join us on the phone call. Is that better? That is better. How are you doing, Alex? What's there on your mind? There we go. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, no, I don't really know what to add to the conversation. I was just, last guy saw my what's your favorite food question, and David Bixon's band <laughs> covered everything there is about Owen Hart. But uh, there we go. Um, it was just a quick one because, as you say, you want to get to a lot of people. But um, do you think we're at a peak time for like wrestling documentaries at the moment with like The Last Ride coming out, this on Vice? You know, a lot of people called like the ECW, you know, DVD is like the peak of WWE produced ones, but. I think it could be a, a pretty good time. I find it more interesting than the product, to be honest, like in ring right now. You know, peak time is um, – I, I I don't really know how to classify that because certainly if you're talking about like the most famous wrestling documentaries, I would argue that the late 90s were, were your peak time with Wrestling with Shadows and Beyond the Mat. Um, now there's certainly more of an abundance of them, uh, many of them being produced by WWE themselves. Which, you know, that's one thing I'm really happy about Dark Side of the Ring being as successful as it is. It gives voice to, you know, um, like painting pro wrestling history with well-produced, high-quality researched topics that aren't just produced by WWE. We have an independent voice now that is really shedding light on these topics that, you know, WWE has no control over. Yeah, there's a great deal of difference between like an in-house, like... All you need to do on Tuesday night is flip between uh, Dark Side of the Ring and the Ruthless Aggression episode on yeah. FS1, and there's your contrast. I mean, they're, they're, to me, two completely separate things. No, excellent. Cheers, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. Thank for you, call. Alex. Cool. Thanks, man. Skype us anytime, everybody. Phone lines are open right now, and I think uh, we're going to continue taking as many calls as we can before we get we get our uh, ratings. But uh, ratings. But our man Neil, are you there? Neil, are you there? Hello, Manuel. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you, Way? I'm not bad, man. Uh, what's going on? And John, of course. Um, I just wanted to uh, put a bit of a shout out there, there for Jamesy, for Jamesy, for Twenholm, the Euro transfer window. And I'd yes. be able to get off the air to know whether the two of you voted and uh, for whom. Um, but I did want to mention, I did want to touch just before. Um, getting off the air and letting somebody else on. Um, what John had alluded to while talking to what David. What John had there. for dinner last night. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it was the, the Sami Zayn thing. 
from oh, it was the Zane slash um, Kevin Owens slash um, Shane McMahon stunt from Hell in a Cell 2017. And, you know, I, I heard that episode of Talk is Jericho when they talk about that. And um, I do have some of the quotations in front of me and uh, from a, you know, a, a report at the time. And it, it struck me when I listened to it. And, you know, they don't mention Owen, but at the same time, this is so many more years later. It's only three years ago, not even because it was at the end of 2017. Oh, and, you know, um, Sammy is saying, um, to me, this is an elite Hollywood level stunt. And they were just kind of like, pull him off. And then he sort of rehearses the conversation. Well, hang on. When exactly do I pull him off? When you see Shane's foot come off the cell, hang on, look. I have 1.8 seconds to make sure I go from being invisible to grabbing him. Um, you don't understand the margin of error of this. So he was really very, um, he was really very open and honest about um, the, the margin. concerns about it. I mean, the difference between success and catastrophe in that kind of a stunt, it's measured in inches and seconds. Like that is the, the margin. It's, it's extremely, um, and it's somewhat like to my point is that it's almost like routine that this is something that like that wasn't a big subject coming out of that stunt at Hell in a Cell. It's almost it's expected when we do Hell in a Cell that something of that nature is going to happen. It certainly was ahead of the Shane McMahon Undertaker Hell in a Cell. And I don't think we give enough credence to what is being asked of these performers and also how it's just been drilled into them that this is part of the job when it really isn't. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. I just wanted to reemphasize that point because Sammy is, um, you know, is more more outspoken than you might normally expect a WWE employee to be um, at, at, at most of the time, in fact. And in that interview, he's pretty, he's laying it out pretty, uh, pretty clearly. You know, he says if it was Hollywood, it would have been rehearsed ad nauseum. They would have had professionals, which implies there weren't professionals. So, um yeah, that, I just wanted to make that point. Um, and again, if it, once I get get off the air, um, I'd love to know who you voted for in the BWE competition. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate Thanks. it. Bye. Um, I personally, uh, well, I want to congratulate, first of all, the entire group for, uh, I would say, an all-time great BWE podcast. And congratulations to the winner, Jamesy. However, my vote did go to Benno and Regress Wrestling. I'm going to have a really sad answer. I didn't vote, so I thought it was. Uh, oh, I can't. Come I on. can't choose. It'd be a uh, you know, for me. James T's card, though. I think the clincher was certainly uh, main Round event of 18. Cesaro versus Will Osprey, uh, and certainly having Kane on the card that didn't hurt either. Uh, our, our our favorite European wrestler, Kane. Let's go to uh, Brandon from New Jersey. Please unmute yourself, and uh, I hopefully you know how to do that, and you can turn off our voices in the background. Have you figured out? Yes. Hello? Great. First time caller, Brandon from New Jersey, figuring yeah. out Skype. First time, long time, guys. How are you doing? Oh, goodness. All right. All right, all right, all right. I'll, be, I'll be real quick. I got three questions real quick, and I'll get out of here. Three um, questions? One, oh, my goodness. Three. Three. I'll shotgun them like, okay. like a brewski, and I'll get out of here. All right, number one. The the thing with the Owen Hart thing that really disturbed me was the whole family thing and how they mm-hmm. sat some sided with Vince and whatnot. And 
I don't know about you, but if some, some people in my family did that to me, if I died like that dramatically and they went with the other side, I'd, I'd be rolling in my grave. That's, that's just unacceptable. Uh, and I'm sure you guys are, are, are in agreement also with that, that that's just total nonsense. And, uh, I'm sorry. It, it, it's difficult, I, w- I would say, for me to completely like say who's right or who's wrong in that scenario. Certainly, like my heart would be closer to the victims, immediate family, and Martha. And you know, um, their case is a unique one because they happen to be a family that primarily makes its income strictly from the person that you know was responsible for the crime, um, and and that just makes it much more i would say of a complicated issue than something i would be able to put my, my myself into i i do have some sympathy for the ones that were classified as like neutral that martha you know was not happy that they stayed neutral with with you know an example being like a ross hart i can only imagine being in the mid- middle of that and your family is divided as much as they are there are some that are either attempting to or are uh deriving an income from WWE. It was a horrendous situation. The the story of like the the facts of the agreement being sent to Jerry McDivitt, it's it's a pretty tough story to understand the motive behind that. But it was it was such an ugly, ugly story that, you know, re- realistically it it definitely had like lifelong scars coming out of that. And it was and so much of it played out in the public. Like it was a really nasty look for the family. And I can't fault Martha for having the feeling she does now, which I mean, really doesn't come out that she has any ill will towards them. But what's done is done in her mind that there's not going to be any relationship with those people. It's um, there, you know, there are going to be, you know, forever lasting scars as a, as a result of that. I feel bad for the kids too, man. That's uh... yeah, who are totally, you know, the the third generation who are kind of had to see the older generation do all of this, and I mean, they're kind of, you know, all of those people are kind of they're the ones caught in the middle, and they're the bystanders on uh, bystanders, unfortunately. Two, my second question: Do Oge and Athena are they are they do they still have relationships with their their cousins that are still wrestling, or are they distant with them? I mean, it sounds like it's. Like there's been like interaction. Um, they're all in Calgary right now, but I mean, Oge is doing his like studying over in England. So I mean, it's not as though he's even over here, but he is right now. Um, it sounds like from Martha's interviews that there are occasional times that they run into family members in town and they're cordial, but it doesn't sound like there's any real um, deep relationships. But I, I mean, I can't speak for like Oge and Athena if there's you know contact with the grandchildren or others that like, maybe. Maybe there is some, um, but yeah, it's kind of unknown beyond kind of what's been said in the last week or two. And my third and final question for the stampede match, are they going to use CFL rules? I'm out of here. Peace. CFL rules. So um, like bigger balls. Um, does the, does that mean they're going to be going to the government asking for $150 million at the end? Like the CFL is currently. Maybe this um, match will be radically Canadian. Maybe that'll be yeah. Chris Jericho's tagline. Radically Canadian? Right. Yeah. Okay. Last call before we get to our ratings, if they're out there yet. But uh, caller, you're currently muted, but please unmute yourself and tell us what is on your mind. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Jesse from uh, Queens, New York. How are you guys doing? Hey, Jesse. Hey, Jesse. 
Good. Uh, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to be quick. So first off, um, the fact that there's no baseball on, I want to thank John because I have the Next Best thing, which is a baseball mogul. He <laughs> mentioned okay. me on his podcast. And, yeah, so, you know, finals are over. been playing it. So thank you for putting me on to that. No problem. And, I hope you have assistance. <laughs> and as far as um, this week in wrestling goes with the Owen Hart documentary and with um, the passing of Shad Gaspard, I think kind of brings to light to me as a fan, especially that, that the WWE is just not a morally good company with the way they've handled, further with the way they handled Owen Hart passing, and it was a crime scene, but they kept, they kept, the, um, they kept the show going, and just looking at the character that they had Gaspar portrayed and other characters around that time, just like Italy, it, it just makes me as a fan not want to support them anymore, and it sucks because WWE is a, uh, it's a good time, you go to their live shows, but just, I can't go there with a good conscience anymore, and I just kind of want to get your thoughts on that. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Um, listen, like every week, it's especially while watching a series like Dark Side of the Ring. I mean, this entire series and spe- specifically, specifically this entire season feels like it is putting like a, a show that puts Vince McMahon on on trial, and it's like putting Vince McMahon at the gates of like, and it's like you know here are all the sins that you've committed throughout your lifetime um it's 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 something i think as as a wrestling fan and specifically a north american wrestling fan um i think it's it's like a lot of us have thought about vice is doing their own remake of a christmas carol pretty much yeah uh except there's no real ending to it you know you don't really see like Vince McMahon necessarily answer for it. it it really is just you know something that i think is is ultimately up to the court of public opinion but anybody who's been following this business long enough, I think knows the type of mm, person that is running this particular company. Um, at the same time, he's got a legion of like followers and, you know, employees. And you listen to somebody like the undertaker, Mark Calloway talk about how much respect he has for Vince McMahon while working for him. Um, He's a very it's it's a very complex type of relationship. I'm sure he has with his employees, his audience, um, and it's yeah certainly like when you look at all the terrible things that have occurred under his watch, it makes things incredibly difficult to justify continue being a fan. Um, but you know, should that how much of that should bleed into I think the efforts of the performers who you know. Um, continue to, I would say, like, to me, you know, continue to do their best, regardless of like the history of of the company. Um, and that's that that line will be different for really any fan. I think that's always going to be kind of that is the transaction. It is what are you comfortable with some of the more questionable actions of this company versus the entertainment I re- receive in return for that um, that fandom that. That I put into this company, and for for a lot of people, uh, they can either separate the good from the bad, they can ignore the bad, or they just begrudgingly acknowledge it, or just understand that yes, this is a company that has a lot that you can uh, pile up that does not put it in a in a shining light. But I still get an enjoyment out of that product. Um, this a month ago, we were talking about all of the cuts during the midst of a pandemic, and. The belief that, listen, this is a publicly traded company that has an obligation to its shareholders. And if you want to view this company in that kind of a relationship, then that is 
many people may not be seeking this to be a company that has um, the interest and fairness of of their employees and independent contractors at, at the top of their priority list. It's um, that that's always a justification that you're going to have to make, and sometimes it it's very messy when it comes to your fandom and questioning that, and that goes beyond WWE as well. Uh, ratings are in. AEW on Wednesday did 701,000 viewers, 0.26 in the demo, seventh for the night among cable programming. Uh, meanwhile, NXT uh, was 53rd with 592,000 viewers and a 0.13 in the key demo. So um, once again, Dark Side of the Ring topping NXT this week. Um, and AEW uh, was up this week. They did 654 last week. NXT was down this week after doing 604 last week. So down slightly, down 12,000 viewers. Any of that surprise you, John? Um, you know, it was a not a giant bounce back for AEW, but they were coming off their lowest number ever last week at 654 and their lowest demo ever. So uh, in that sense, it was a moderate bounce back for a show that... I mean, beyond being the go-home show, I wouldn't say this was a show that on paper um, grabbed your your interest level. There was nothing to me that was announced that was like, can't miss. But seventh for the night on cable, um, that's still, like, that's consistent. You know, we look at Raw, um, that their viewership is way down, but they are still... Mm-hmm. Th- the difference I'll say is this, that when you look at Raw, is they are still on top of of the cable ratings on Monday. However, what they're up against... They are, you know, largely, and there will be exceptions here, but programming that is either uh, maintaining or slightly below or news, which is way, way up. Um, They're probably, and I should look into this more, but there probably are not a lot of examples of shows that are creating new content and have lost so much audience as Raw has. And that's that's a question we won't be able to answer until there's some kind of... um, normalcy period where we can look back and say was there an audience that tuned out during this period that never came back or was this a i'm taking a break phase for three to five hundred thousand people that comes back and a year from now um they're you know consistently above the two million mark or is this a new level that we can expect raw to be at we don't know that answer that'll be ultimately what this period is remembered for either a uh a short interim period where interest was at its lowest for raw, or it was something that ultimately drove people off that found other things to do with their Monday nights. Let's close off here with Hansi, who's been waiting patiently. Hansi, what's on your mind? What's, uh, uh, oh, no, no, it's unmuted. Yep. You're there. We can hear you. Oh, you can hear me. You yeah. are live Hansi. Oh yeah, see, the fine. world yeah. is listening, Hanzi. Yeah, I'll be quick, but your pause. I gotta give you props for the, you know, in, you know when you cover the G one, right? I never take into consideration. Can I take it for granted that you have all these things tallied up? And it's kind of a testament to see how WWE audience would do with the G one kind of mini. Because I, I try to figure out like who's on top of the leaderboard in NXT, and I can't even do the math. Like, it's just basic math has fucked me up. So I got to give you props for all the years that you have, like, you got, any, any one of you guys have done the G1 and how you figure out, like, the different scoring board. Because even with this mini one, I can't even fucking, I can't even, I, I can't even do it. But, uh, <laughs> uh, again, I'll leave you with the, the old hard stuff. I'll, I, I, I mean, everyone said what they had to say. I'll let you guys do the review on Friday. I'll just say, I'll leave you this, that, 
I'm looking, even though the, the, the go home show wasn't the greatest go home show for AEW, I am going to order the pay per view. I did, I do think they sold me on enough that, you know, with the Cody and the Lance Archer and the Stampede match. My question, though, is do you guys think that there's going to be a big surprise? Like, and like, do you think it, the rumors might be true that it might be Sting? Or do you think that's far fetched right now? And I'll leave you with that. Thank you for all the good work you guys have done. And uh, it was a good interview with David Dispan. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Hansi. you Hansi. We appreciate it. Um, yeah, there's certainly the potential to do that. I wouldn't, um, you know, I, I think. Sting where? Sting, Sting and part of what? Oh, clearly he's got to be in that ladder match, right? Of course. Um, yeah. Yeah, you could do it. I guess. I guess the the question is like, what is the end point with Sting? Like, is it to do one big match at, at some point? Um, and and ultimately, it's going to bring about the questions of you know him uh, health wise. That I mean, that is something, like the guy's sixty one. You know what I mean? And WWE after the Seth Rollins match, they were never putting that guy in a ring again. Um, so I I don't know. I it, it's there to me. It's it's something that I. I don't know if I'd be playing that card right now if I was AEW, but it, it to me, like, using Sting for, like, uh, let's just say they want to bring him in for three months. I think doing so without a crowd, I don't know how much he would necessarily mean to, to business, but from a live pop, I mean, it would have been enormous, but you don't have that. So I, I don't know how high that would be on my, if that was an available option, if I would necessarily be exercising that one. I think there's certainly a place for Sting within AEW and the history that they could draw from. But I, for me, it's not in-ring. Uh, I think his days are long done as an in-ring performer. I don't even want to see him in a tag team situation. But as a mouthpiece for somebody, as somebody that you know you can use just to have somebody to, I don't know, uh, help get in the midst of a there's in so the middle of a storyline already. I just I don't know if you find an, like to me he would be. But but the alternative to put him into the ring, I think, is worse. And I think you know you risk at you risk like AEW having bad matches. And that to me at this point is still something that um, they they seem to hold it to, uh, at a very high standard. So uh, beyond that, of course, you know um, Mike Tyson is is going to. I guess well, you and I will do a a bigger preview of Double or Nothing, perhaps also on Rewind to SmackDown. There is a lot we probably wanted to get to. I also though just wanted to talk about how. Uh, Hansi mentioned like the 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 round robin tallying that they did on NXT. Um, I definitely agree that they could have done a better job. I think catching the audience up on what these points were and specifically what they mean. You know, going into that last match with Kushida and Drake Maverick, I don't feel like they really did a good job setting out the scenario of what would happen if this guy won versus if this guy won, what the possibilities were, are. To me, that's part of the fun of the G1. When you get to the finals, thinking about all the poss- possible like nerdy scenarios, and for whatever reason, um, they just never really hit on that, which I'm a little bit disappointed by, but nonetheless, they did get to a three-way tie here in Group A, and next week they're doing a tiebreaker between Kushida, Jake Atlas, and also Drake Maverick. So we shall see what the winner is, who, who will go on to face uh, El Ijo del Fantasma uh, for the uh, Cruiserweight Interim Championship. All right. 
that's going to bring an end to the show. So I want to thank all of our callers uh, who called in over the last uh, half hour or so, as well as David Bixenspan for joining us uh, for an extended chat. Uh, that was great stuff, chatting about the Owen Hart case from a lot of different angles. And yes, we'll be back Friday night. Rewind to SmackDown. That will be available to all members of the Post Wrestling Cafe. And then Saturday night, we're going live immediately after Double or Nothing. If you're a Double Double Ice Cap or Espresso patron, you can tune in live and phone in with your feedback to the show. And then we've also got Total Recall on Sunday. So all of that can be found at either postwrestling.com or postwrestlingcafe.com. That is it for us. Thank you for tuning in to the Cafe Hangout. And thank you. Thank you to Phil Chertoff for the snazzy graphics. Much appreciated.